I see the future that's within our grasp. From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison. Democracy is not a prophecy, it's self-actuating. I'm Claire Salmi. I'm Cole Wozniak. And I'm Fiona Hatch. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. This is 1050 Bascom. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are pleased to welcome in Professor J. Michael Collins of the UW School of Human Ecology, as well as the La Follette School of Public Affairs. During this conversation, we discuss the inflation crisis in America, its roots and effects on policymaking, and the lives of everyday Americans. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. For our listeners, could you briefly define what inflation is and how is it affecting our economy? Um, so you can think about it real. So we, we oftentimes think about real terms, right? So real terms means what things would cost um, in a constant basis. So if I bought a stamp to mail a postcard um, 20 years ago, I paid less, although we still think the cost of mailing a postcard is about the same today as it was back then. So um, stamps have doubled in price over 20 years, but you know, the actual, what all we're doing is moving a, you know, a piece of mail across the country. So nothing has really changed there. So this is true for a lot of things, you know, a gallon of gas used to be cheaper or whatever else. So um, it's basically the, uh, you know, what we pay in nominal terms has gone up over time. And we, you know, this has been a constant phenomenon in the U.S. It used to be you could buy a lot for a penny. Today, most people chuck their pennies and don't even keep them. So it's just the sort of the increasing costs of things um, in real terms. So for the past year, the Federal Reserve has been hiking interest rates in order to temper inflation rates and prevent inflation from becoming a permanent fixture of the American economy. Can you talk about um, what impact those policies have had on inflation so far and what we're likely to see going forward? Yeah, so the Federal Reserve is our um, central bank in the U.S., and they do things like um, issue bonds and monitor the money supply and those kinds of things. So when they change their interest rates, their target interest rates, basically they're changing the rate of the interest that they're charging banks. So you can think about the uh, central bank as kind of being the bank of banks. And so all these banks that they make funding to now, they're going to charge a higher interest rate. So that kind of ripples through the whole system. So the immediate response you see when the Fed raises interest rates is that the interest rates on the stuff that we buy goes up. So mortgages is a great example. Um, mortgages where you could find them as low as like two and a half or 2.75% maybe a year and a half ago, and now 5% if you're lucky, probably 6% more likely. So um, the immediate reaction is by banks start to raise interest rates. So if you think about what happens now, if anybody who's out there looking for credit, it's more expensive. So they're either not going to look for a credit or not look for as much credit. And so that's going to start to sort of slow the economy down. That's going to slow down spending, slow down home sales, slow down um, industrial activity, whatever it might be. Um, and in the longer run, that, sh that slowdown should start to bring down prices because there'll be less and less demand for, for goods and services. And you know, eventually we'll start to see some stabilization in prices. So that's what the Fed is doing. Is it working? Well, certainly interest rates are up. Um, we are seeing slight declines in the inflation rate, so um, certainly not near the, the historic highs we saw, but still pretty high. I mean, we see four or five percent, which is still fairly high. Um, so it's coming down. Um, the thing that I pay attention to is uh, people's expectations. So there's a survey of consumer expectations that the New York Federal Reserve does, and the University of Michigan also does an expectation survey. And it does seem like consumers are starting to think prices are coming down. And that actually may be more important 
Because if we all think prices are going up, we're all going to behave as if prices are going up. We're going to be willing to pay more for things. We're going to ask for more money. Um, but if we think that this is stabilizing, then um, this doesn't become a self-fulfilling kind of prophecy. So um, it does seem like it's working. How soon it's going to work, I can't tell you. Um, you know, it might be, uh, I can tell you the markets in terms of the, how interest rates are being priced out over the next year appear to think that inflation is going to start to really come down in mid-2023 and that the Fed might even start cutting interest rates in 2023-2024. So um, whether the markets are right or not, I don't know, but uh, it does look like the Fed's actions are having some effect right now. And so a consequence of these higher interest rates isn't just lowering the rates of inflation, but it also could trip the American economy into a recession. Do you think that's likely to happen? So uh, I, this is 100% what you just described. It is a very, very razor's edge um, decision that the Fed's making here. Um, not that they should raise interest rates, but how far do they raise interest rates? When do they stop? Because if they keep raising interest rates too long, they could exactly, as you say, push the economy into recession. So they are very cautious about... Um, when they stop doing this, how they tell people they're going to stop doing this, how far they push, you know, each increment. We've been seeing big increments, say um, three quarters of a, of a interest rate, or a, we call them basis points, 75 basis points. So three quarters of a, a rate change or a half, so it's 50 basis points or half an interest rate. So um, we'll see if it starts to slow down um, to like a quarter or, you know, eventually no change or even a decline. That's when they think they've got it under control. But um, what we're going to see maybe is higher unemployment, um, and that would really be the trigger of a recession if we started to see unemployment go up. We haven't seen it yet. Um, it's still a pretty hot labor market, so right now it doesn't look like we're headed for a recession, although um, if you talk to a lot of people in industry, um, certainly we've seen the tech markets, we've seen layoffs, so it does seem like it's possible, but the data haven't shown much of it yet. Why are we seeing such high rates of inflation happening right now in the U.S.? Both sides of the aisle have their different explanations for why this is occurring. Democrats would say that this is a transnational trend where this is happening in other parts of the world, and we do see that. But Republicans and even some Democrats um, who are more fiscally minded or say that the American Rescue Plan and there was a lot of input and demand induction into the economy that kind of triggered inflation rates to start rising in the U.S. What is your take and how do you think that happened? <laughs> uh, you know, my take is that they're, they're all a little bit right. Um, so certainly this was, an, uh, you know, unprecedented as a uh, almost cliche at this point, but it was unprecedented. We saw the pandemic hit the brakes on the economy globally. Factories in China, um, you know, production in trade and shipping things. So all this stuff kind of hit hit the brakes. Not 100%, but you know enough that it really impacted. You know, there were manufacturers in the North America who were waiting on a chip or a circuit board from Asia and it wasn't coming. So um, that certainly was um, you know a huge factor here that there were lots of goods that people wanted they couldn't get. So there were fewer goods on the market. Supply and demand says we start to say, all right, fine, instead of paying, I'm not going to wait for that dishwasher to go on sale. I'm going to pay an extra $100 for it. I don't care. Um, so we saw this sort of global shortage of stuff that consumers wanted to buy. Meanwhile, um, you know, people had more money in their pockets, partly because they were staying at home. <laughs> they weren't going anywhere. They weren't commuting. They weren't. So we had that kind of phenomenon. And we had um, the stimulus payments. So the government was actually handing out money. So all those things were happening simultaneously to really um, stimulate people to buy stuff. And there was a limited amount of stuff to buy. And that sort of made prices uh, go up. This happened everywhere in the world. It, it, it really was a global phenomenon. Um, we had a couple of other wrinkles in here too. One is energy prices kind of went crazy. Um, you know, 
part of this is Ukraine and, and Russia's influence on um, the gas markets and the oil markets. Um, it also has to do with um, production in the Middle East. So we had sort of energy prices getting really out of control, and that's really where we saw most of the inflation was in energy markets. Um, and this affects electricity, it affects all, all parts of the economy. So that was unusual as well. So we had sort of multiple things going on at once. Um, and then the um, I think most economists were pretty surprised at how quickly most of these economies that were locked down came back. So, you know, we saw unprecedented job losses, um, you know, unemployment rates we hadn't seen before in April and May of 2020. And then by August, people were back to work. It was amazing. You know, the, the level of unemployment went way down and this happened all over the place. So um, things bounced back faster than anybody thought at the same time. So all those things came together. It it was very hard to predict. I wouldn't have predicted this, and I don't think most economists did either. Since we have been seeing higher rates of inflation, we've had some other major policies passed by the Biden administration in terms of, it's sensitive right now, but whether or not the administration will cut the existing student debt. And we've seen the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS bill. What impact do those policies have on American inflation? They all have an impact. Um, you know, if this just take the student debt one. Um, there are a lot of people who have not made a student debt payment in Three years. So three years. So, you know, you may say, well, my student loan was only 250 or $300. Yeah, but over three years, you know, multiply that by 36, that's a lot of money. So there's a lot of, again, it's money in people's pockets when, when we do that debt relief. And certainly that has a stimulus effect. Um, it's less clear if the debt forgiveness will have that same kind of effect since it's not really money in people's pocket. It's sort of money people on people's ledger sheet. You know, it reduces a, a liability they had. Um, although it does... Um, you know, it does mean they don't have to start making those payments again. Um, if that even comes to fruition, I think that's a, a tough one. Um, things like the Inflation Reduction Act, which um, is uh, branding by all means. It was it was really, there are pieces of it that reduce prices on some things. And in the long run, certainly it might influence our energy supply in ways that are more economically efficient. But in the short run, it spends more money. Um, and that has a stimulus effect and also might have some impact on the um, inflation rate. I would say that the reasons it might not are that a lot of it's not that much money and it's a lot of the things that are in that bill take a long time to get rolling. So, you know, spending on energy efficiency isn't really going to start for a few years. And by that point, we may be well past this uh, this um, period of high inflation. So, um, you know, honestly, there isn't a whole lot federal policymakers can do on the inflation issue. It's really the Fed raising interest rates and the economy um, sort of stabilizing sort of supply and demand. So I think, you know, for good and for worse, right? So these bills may not make things much worse, but there probably isn't much they could do to make it better. Transitioning more to the politics of it, why is it that inflation can be so uniquely politically destructive? It's a great, that's a great question. Um, and, you know, if we take, we take a step back and think about other countries or think, think about Germany in the 1920s, think about Venezuela in the, in the 1910s, um, we've seen countries really be devastated by high inflation. Some of this is what's the source of the inflation. So um, when it's the government frivolously printing money, which is kind of the story of Germany in the 20s, um, or of command and control economy, which we sort of saw in Venezuela um, and rationing, those those are points where, you know, the citizens can rightfully say, like, this is wrong, right? So you're, you're inflicting pain on upon us <laughs> that, uh, that um, needn't be here. And so, you know, people get more, um, more willing to take radical positions in order to um, sort of fight those kinds of things. 
The forms of inflation we have now are just so complicated. I think for many people, all they really understand is I used to pay $2.50 for a gallon of milk. Now I pay $5 for a gallon of milk. This is not fun. Like, in, and it's, it, it feels um, out of control. So it, and I think it makes people feel differently than um, you know, other things that happen in the economy. So unemployment obviously devastates people who lose their job. But if you don't lose your job, you're sort of not that affected by it, right? And so oftentimes when people lose a job, they say, well, you know, maybe it was my fault, it was the company's fault. They don't blame the government for that. And so um, there is a finger they can point at um, where they can't point the finger as easily with inflation. And so that sort of, um, you know, that um, displaced anger, I think is partly what makes people mad about inflation. I mean, ultimately people only have the money they have. And so when inflation goes up, when I have to pay um, instead of $50 to fill my gas tank, $100 to fill my gas tank, that's $50 I don't have to spend on other stuff like food or, you know, my kids, <laughs> my kids Christmas presents or whatever it might be. So um, those kinds of things, I think, really impact people in a way that, um, you know, makes them angry, makes them want to be more politically active. And that might be, you know, you might say politically extreme um, because they just don't know what else to do. Um, so I think that's part of what we're seeing. And on that same line, um, coming to the 2022 midterms, most expected that the conventional wisdom and the economic tides would have created some sort of red wave in which we would have seen more Republicans get elected than Democrats, um, as is the normal um, pattern with midterms. But it seems like in the postmortems and mostly the election coverage is that voters did not punish Biden and the Democrats as much as um, most predicted, given the economic tides. I found a nugget that in Michigan, 75% of voters were upset with the economic situation in the U.S. and ranked high inflation as their number one priority. But uh, we saw Democrats in that state, Gretchen Whitmer, win by almost 10 points. Mm -hmm. So um, why is it that voters didn't punish Biden and the Democrats as much? So I, and I, I was at partisan town halls earlier this year, and inflation came up a lot. I mean, people are definitely vote, very active voters, vote, active enough to show up at a town hall. We're, at, we're you know, aggravated about inflation. I think that it's, it goes back to the issue I just said, which is it's really hard to point a finger on this. Like, all you really know is I'm paying more. And, yeah, it seems like maybe some of the things the Democrats did might have encouraged inflation, but it started before they were even in office. And so, you know, at the end of the day, it's, um, it's so amorphous that – I think voters are kind of like, eh, this, I'm angry about this, but I really can't blame one side or the other for this. I wish it would go away. And, you know, they're picking either based on which party they think is going to, um, whether it's their second tier issue or do the best they can with given the situation they are, or they're voting on the people. Um, and so I think those two things overwhelmed um, any general sense that, of, you know, blame for inflation. Can you discuss how the role inflation plays in terms of economic inequality and how inflation would be harder on people with lower incomes than those with higher incomes? Yeah, without a doubt, uh, inflation is hardest on the lowest income groups. So, um, you know, I just I made these examples of, you know, filling a tank of gas or a gallon of milk. Um, you know, it's those things have uh, sort of you, you only need so much, right? It doesn't matter if you're really rich or, or really poor. Um, you know, filling the cost of your tank uh, or buying a gallon of milk is, we're all going to face those same prices. You're not going to consume that much more milk if you're richer, um, or probably even that much more gas if you're richer. So, um, you know, what happens is a relative to income, you end up spending more and more money on these things that are rapidly increasing in price. And so that just squeezes your already limited budget. So if you're making 
$25,000 a year, you're probably spending almost all of that because you, you have to keep up with all your expenses and now those expenses are growing. Um, unless you get a raise or you find a way to make more money, you're just gonna get more and more squeezed. So what we see lower income households doing is, is borrowing more, taking on second jobs, trying to work extra shifts, just do whatever they can to bring more money in because they can't cut back. Um, you know, you can't decide, well, I'm gonna drive a little bit less. You, you have to drive the distance you have to drive to get to work or whatever else. So um, for higher income people, oftentimes they can absorb these increasing prices. They can dip into their savings if they need to. Um, you know, frankly, we've seen a good job market. And so people who are in um, especially so-called knowledge work, you know, white collar work have gotten raises. And so, you know, they've been able to keep up with inflation because their income has kept up as well. And yeah, so at the beginning you talked about how inflation is the nominal increase of prices, whereas the real price is staying the same. And this wouldn't be an issue, correct, if wages were keeping up with inflation for, especially for middle and lower income families, but we're, there's some sort of lag there. Yeah, and I think that's, um, that's a really key point. So we saw from most of the 2010s almost no wage growth, especially at the low end of the income distribution. So workers making you know, lower wages really didn't get a raise for five, six years. And then 2018, 2019, we finally started to see some wage growth for those workers. Um, and then coming out of the pandemic, there was a huge demand for labor. So a lot of those workers are actually getting raises. Um, but it's, so let's say inflation, um, you know, has kind of been eight, 9% at some points in time. Those um, increases in income that people were seeing were more like four or five percent, which is great relative to zero, which is what we saw for a long time. So people were happy with four or five percent, but in real terms, they were worse off, right? Because they're getting four percent more, prices are up eight percent more. You know, they're still negative four percent in terms of their net ability to buy stuff. So, um, and that was uh, that phenomenon is worse at the lower income groups. Um, you know that those workers haven't been able to get the same kind of wage increases as salaried workers or workers in other fields. Of course, we're also talking about um, fields that you can't work from home. So if you're in a manufacturing job or service job, uh, you know, you're, you, you have to get out of the house. You can, you know, post lockdown, you're out in the field doing work. And so it's a, a different phenomenon than people who are working from home. Going back to the politics of it, Trump has announced that he's running for president again. Uh, a lot of his core voters had a reduced amount of social trust in institutions, various Republicans and Trump kind of attacked and there were just a lesser trust in the government. How does inflation play into that moving forward? And do you think that's going to exacerbate some of those trends that we saw? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a really important part of the Fed's job here is to make the markets and, and via the markets, consumers, households, the rest of us feel like they got this under control. Um, if we start to feel like the what the Fed is doing is not working, then um, it could get ugly, you know, sort of politically uh, and, and economically. Um, if people start to think, all right, um, prices are inevitably going to go up 10% a year, I have to demand more in my wages. And so companies say, all right, well, if I'm going to pay more wages, I got to raise prices. And then we get into this, you know, cycle of um, constant expectations about inflation being really high and this sense that there's nothing anybody can do about it. Um, you know, there there is some truth to the fiscal conservatives saying like if we cut government spending that starts to reduce sort of in a Keynesian sort of macroeconomic way sort of reduce the amount of, of you know government stimulus to the economy but um, that's slow and you know I don't think a lot of um, everyday voters are going to be as concerned about that slow reduction in inflation as a result of less government from not getting 
you know, the things they want from the government. So there's going to be this trade-off where politicians are going to say, well, I can fix things, um, but that's going to create a price to you, which is that you're not going to get some of the things that you've been getting. You're not going to get that same tax credit. You're not going to get that same benefit of whatever kind. And so I think it's, it, I mean, that's really where the rubber hits the road um, for both sides of the aisle if they say they're going to do anything on the stimulus side. So a lot of this is the Fed's job. And ultimately, do the markets trust the Fed and do the consumers, um, you know, behave in such ways that suggest that they believe the economy is stabilizing and the prices are stabilizing. Um, and it's very important to remember, this is a very different situation than we see in you know, developing countries where you have runaway inflation because the government is just printing money. Like nobody right now believes our government is out of control printing money, despite what the politicians say. That's not really what's going on. Um, it's just more stimulative than maybe they would like, but it's not runaway inflation. And as you brought up developing countries, what are some of the other trans trends that we're seeing while other countries are being really negatively affected in their economies in terms of inflation? I mean, I think the, the, the worst case scenario we're seeing right now is in the EU um, with what's happening with energy prices. I mean, the EU has become so dependent upon particularly Russian gas, um, you know, that they are going to face. I mean, I've seen numbers of, you know, doubling in some cases of their cost of heating for the winter. And, um, uh, you know, you can talk to lots of public health people who tell you that people will die. Like, this has severe consequences for especially older people, but anybody who's sick and infirm and um, you know, colder temperatures are not going to uh, sit well. So, um, you know, I think we're going to see the some very tangible effects of energy inflation in the EU. Um, but we see that in other places as well. Inflation in, you know, core commodities like rice or grain. Um, and again, that's affected by Ukraine. And uh, it's also been affected by the sort of supply chain overall and how that's going to affect many developing countries. So, um, you know, we... We haven't seen the kind of unrest yet as a result of this, but um, I think there's lots of pundits who are watching carefully, uh, especially in some of these countries that are already politically unstable. Um, and then you add to that a famine or a shortage of food, um, and certainly we could see um, you know, more unrest in, in different places around the world. So as we close out this podcast, let's try to end on a positive note. What makes you optimistic about the U.S. economy in the short and long-term future? You know, I'm uh, always optimistic, I think, about the U.S. economy. And we, we are a, um, you know, the labor force of the U.S. is extremely well-educated. Um, you know, it's, it's things like our university system. It's, um, it, it's the ability to have immigration, um, which I know is still a politically hot thing. But we, we attract a lot of really talented people from around the world to, to work here. Um, and that is ultimately the engine of the economy, is our... Um, the intellectual property, the um, creativity, the innovation, um, the sort of ability of workers to pivot from, um, you know, servicing a car to servicing a car that has this high-tech electronic system, you know, the electronic EVs, you know. Um, so we're seeing this across um, different fields right now where, um, you know, we're, we're, able to, we're, able, we're able to pivot during the pandemic to, you know, to providing services in different ways. So I think that flexibility of the labor force and um, the sort of intellectual power of our labor force is really important. Um, you know, the key thing for government, a lot of this is just to, you know, not get in the way, not get in the way on the education side, not get in the way on the immigration side, um, and to, you know, let consumers and let families and households sort of do the things they want to do. Um, but that obviously brings attention of, you know, how much do we want to support one group versus another? How much do we want to support one industry versus another? And, um, you know, those are the kinds of things I think that politicians are going to have to grapple with. Um, but in the long run, we're seeing, you know, that 
this economy has been remarkably resilient, more resilient than many others around the country, around the world. Um, and you know, I'm fairly confident it might be longer than two years, but certainly within five years, this this inflation spell will be um, mostly back down again, and we'll have a, a fairly vibrant economy once again. Awesome. Well, on that note, thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Collins. Thanks for having me. For more information on 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. The podcast is edited by Claire Salmi, Fiona Hatch, and Cole Wozniak, and is produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.